Now hear God's holy word from Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from Yahweh. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Yahweh. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And Yahweh respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you for your word. And in this season of thanksgiving, we ask that you would stir us up by your Holy Spirit to give you proper thanks to direct our worship and praise to you for all the good things that you have showered us with, uh, the benefits and blessings of our lives. Father, now cause us to rest in your provision and sovereignty and care uh, as, as we hear your word and as we uh, go into it together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Abdul Rahman al-Sumait was an incredibly gifted and compassionate man. He was born in Kuwait in 1947. He became, in Kuwait, one of the nation's most respected and skilled physicians. But at the age of 35, he left all of that behind and moved to the continent of Africa, where he served until his death in 2013. He moved to Africa because he was saddened by the poverty, the hunger, the disease, so he sacrificed his life and his practice, and he sacrificed his own comfort to dedicate himself to making life better for others. And throughout his time in Africa, he suffered himself quite a great deal. He contracted malaria, he was bitten by cobras, he was imprisoned by the local governments, he suffered through heart disease and diabetes, but he was determined to accomplish his goal of starting charities, orphanages, schools, and at the end of his life, through his efforts and his work, it's estimated that he supported 9,500 orphans, he educated 95,000 students, he built 860 schools, four universities, and dug 9,500 wells. It's also estimated that through his work, about 7 million people were converted to Islam, including Christian priests and bishops. He also built 5,700 mosques and 102 Islamic centers. Dr. Abdul Rahman al-Sumait was a devout Muslim his whole life, and he dedicated all the things he did and, and all of his work, everything he did in his life, he dedicated to the cause and the growth and the glory of Islam. Another man, Naranan Krishnan, was a famous chef in the most luxurious hotels in India. And he made a quite, quite a nice living at, at, at um, being a chef, but he quit his job several years ago to focus his time on addressing the poverty and the hunger afflicting his country. So he started a charitable organization that provides three meals a day to India's homeless. He visits the people that his organization serves. He personally bathes them. He shaves them. He cuts their hair. He gently loves and serves people who are sick, who are afflicted with 
deformities or mental illness, people who are living in unimaginable conditions. He joyfully cares for people who may never in their entire lives, may have never been spoken to or touched lovingly or gently. And every day, Krishnan goes into some of the most hellish places on earth, and he goes in there beaming with joy, loving the unlovable, and at the end of the day, at night in his home, he prays to his Hindu gods. We all believe, and I trust everyone in this room believes, I hope we do, that Jesus is alone, the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we process stories like this? How are we to think about this? How do we categorize these men, especially when they've done some incredible work that many Christians have never done? Surely, we might say, surely there's no hell, there's no judgment for people like this, right? What about the agnostic doctor doing research that helps paralyzed people walk again? Or the atheist composer whose music stirs your heart and it's the sweetest thing you've ever heard? What do we say to these? Do we really believe that there is nothing but judgment waiting for these people apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to say that unless they put their trust in the son of the living God, repent of their sins, cry out to him to save them, that all of these amazing works are nothing? Are you prepared to say that, that all of this is nothing? I am. I will say that. I will say that uh, without hesitation because we can recognize that God has fashioned every man and woman in his image. And because of that, each person has an amazing capability, a capacity to do and create wonderful, amazing, beautiful things. You can really and truly alleviate the suffering and deprivation of other people. And we as Christians can appreciate their works. We can benefit from them. We can learn from them. And at the same time, we can still maintain that apart from Jesus, there is no life. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope and no light. Not for Abdul, Asumate, not for Narayan, Krishnan, not for me, not for you, not for anybody. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. It's Jesus or nothing. What is the difference, though, between the work of Christians and the work of those who don't put their faith and trust in Jesus? Well, the difference between the two is something like the difference between Abel's worship and Cain's worship. It's the difference between working with gratitude and thanksgiving and obedience to the creator and working in the world in such a way that you ignore God Worship in your own way, give your thanks to an idol or to yourself, or you give thanks to natural selection, or you give uh, uh, thanks to chance. The effort might be the same, but in whose name is the work being done? To whom is the worship and the thanksgiving directed? That is everything. That means everything. Because God is our creator, he gets to say how he wants us to approach him, and he gets to say how he wants to be worshipped. And tragically, as, as heartbreaking as it is, unbelieving men can do amazing work and give thanks to an idol, directing their worship to things that are powerless and false. Yes, along the way, people may be fed and bathed and relieved of their suffering momentarily in this life. But if those same people are led to hell, what difference really has it made eternally? What has been gained? Apart from the gospel, the one serving and the one being served are not one bit closer to eternal life. 
And because they and we are all depraved, we're fallen. On our own, we have no release from guilt. On our own, we have no covering for sin, no forgiveness of our debt, no answer to death, no solution to the grave, no light in the darkness unless we are united to Jesus. And that union to Jesus comes by faith alone, not a dead faith, not an intellectual assent, but a living faith, a faith that produces obedience and gratitude, a thankful trust that directs all worship and honor and hope toward the Lord Jesus. So the matter of who you worship and to whom you are thankful is no small thing. That is the, that is the question on which everything hinges. Now, you may have gotten this question before. You may be even thinking this to yourself right now. Doesn't that make God an egotist? Doesn't, is he so insecure that he depends on humans to boost his self-esteem, that he only saves those who flatter him? Is, is the God of creation, is he kind of like the Greek gods, temperamental, unstable, vain? Is God like a four-year-old who will throw a fit if you don't give him what he wants? No. Uh, that's not why he requires your thanksgiving and your worship. God already gets the worship and the glory from the entire universe. Jesus said, if people don't praise him, that the rocks would cry out. The rocks give praise and glory to God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Job 38 says, the morning stars sing together. All of creation is in a constant eruption of praise and thanks and worship. All the host of heaven, when you get to the book of Revelation, everything in heaven and earth and under the earth sings, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Thanksgiving to God is the natural, authentic, spontaneous response of the entire created world. And in this world of thanksgiving, sinful human beings stick out. We aren't normal. The ingrate is out of tune with all of creation. And to the ungrateful, hardened, um, sinful heart, thanksgiving to the God of creation is unnatural. Thanksgiving is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel right because sin has spoiled his affections. He's separated from God, and that's okay by him because he doesn't like God all that much to begin with. He's an enemy of God, so ingratitude toward God just feels normal. It's just the default setting. He doesn't know it. The sinful man doesn't know it, but he's in a desperate situation. It's the natural man's sin and the sentence of death upon him that has darkened his mind and has put him out of step with the entire cosmos. His ingratitude has put him out of step with the rocks and the heavens and the stars and, and all of creation. His ingratitude has, has put him out of step. That's the problem Jesus came to solve. And so he forgives our sin and he delivers us from death and he removes barriers to fellowship with God. And Jesus, by his spirit, opens our eyes so that we can see the world as it is and be thankful for it. Then, and only then, we erupt in thanksgiving too with the rest of all creation. We can finally live in reality when our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. 
God wants us to worship and give thanks, not because he's trying to inflate his own ego, but because that's the orderly response to his good gifts. That's the response that all of his creation gives him, and that's the orderly response to uh, all that he's done for us. It is good for us to give thanks. So if we're giving thanks, it's only because we have been put right with God. We have been put right with creation. We have been put right with each other. It's only then that, that we can give him thanks. So if we're giving thanks, it means we're singing in harmony with the cosmos that God has created. Now, we just read the tragic story of Cain and Abel. This is the story of two men with radically different approaches to God. One thankful, one thankless. They both present offerings to God. They both do good works. They both work hard. I mean, they're, they're both working uh, to, to bring something to the altar. But one gift is offered rightfully in faith and one is offered spitefully with ingratitude. And we find that only the sacrifice presented in faith is acceptable to God. What happened there in that story? What, we have scant details, but there's enough context here that we can piece together what's going on. Because the story of Cain and Abel begins back with Adam and Eve. In the garden, after the man and the woman were exposed for their disobedience and rebellion, God clothes Adam and Eve with tunics of skin. He clothes them in robes of animal hide. And so in order to uh, provide these robes of, of, of animal skin, some animals had to be relieved of their skin. They had to be killed. Uh, God had to kill an animal or two. And there they learned an important lesson that when we sin, something has to die. Death is the result of sin. And while I deserve to die right now, God has designated a substitute. And at that time, it was an animal. Eventually, God, and he promises he's going to provide his own son. And so from there on, every time an animal is sacrificed, God's people remember some key lessons that the animal goes through the sacrifice as my representative. That's the first thing, that whatever's happening to the animal is really what is happening to me in worship. Um, and he's going through as my proxy. Secondly, as the animal is put to death, so I must mortify my own sin. I have to kill my own sin just as surely as the animal is being put to death. And thirdly, it points me to the greater and perfect sacrifice that is to come. Every time an animal is sacrificed, those lessons are repeated. So Cain and Abel are born to Adam and Eve, and they grow up, and they listen, and they watch. Daddy, take an animal. When we're out of fellowship with God, when we've sinned, at, at certain festival times and on the Sabbath, we have to bring him an offering and we see him, we see dad in order to set things right, make a sacrifice to restore our fellowship to each other and to God. There has to be a substitutionary offering. They know this. So Cain, as he grows up, has the privilege of following his father as a gardener. Um, Cain works the land and he grows vegetables. He takes dominion over the land and over the produce of the land. Abel's job is to raise animals. Abel takes dominion over the animals. And verse 3 says, in the process of time, Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God. That little phrase, uh, in the process of time, uh, sounds like a, a, a festival season or a time, a, a marker of Sabbath time or special time to stop and worship God. 
And so Abel, in this time to worship, Abel faithfully followed God's principles and he faithfully followed God's example. It has to be an animal. And then Abel makes it a firstborn. He gives him his best. The offering comes off the top. He offers the fat of the animal and he brings it to God saying this, in his worship, I know that I deserve to die, but God graciously accepts this bloody sacrifice, this substitute in my place. And by obeying God, I worship him and I thank him with all my being, with all that I have. This is representative of my entire substance. This is representative of my entire house. I bring this before God. That's how Abel demonstrates his gratitude. Cain does not follow the Lord's example. Cain brings vegetables to God. And it seems that at one point, Cain must have worshiped the right way. Um, but he's now decided to take a detour and do things a different way. What was the right thing for Cain to do? If you grow vegetables and your brother grows animals, the right thing to do would be to take the best of your harvest and trade it to your brother for an animal so that you can bring uh, an appropriate sacrifice. Cain doesn't do that, not this time. And that may be an indicator that something is already brewing between him and his brother, uh, that there's already animosity in his heart toward his brother, that he doesn't go to his brother and make this exchange. So Cain, instead of offering an animal, he arrogantly offers a bloodless sacrifice and then becomes pridefully jealous when the Lord accepts his brother's sacrifice, but doesn't accept his own. Now, God is tender with Cain. God is patient with him. Uh, he doesn't immediately dismiss Cain. He speaks to him as a tender father. God encourages Cain to do right. He sees the path that he's headed down in his anger, and he warns him, don't go any farther. Sin, God says, is like a beast crouching at your door, but you have to kill it. You have to kill it. Just as I killed those beasts to clothe your mom and dad, just as Abel killed the beast that he offered, just as I'm going to kill the serpent, just as I'm going to offer my own sin, uh, my own son as a sacrifice, so Abel uh, killed his sacrifice. Cain, you must kill a sacrifice and you must kill the sin that is present in your life and in your heart. Humble yourself, Cain. Bring the right kind of sacrifice and I will be pleased and your countenance will be lifted up. Well, the conversation that God has with Cain is the kind of conversation fathers often have to have with their sons, the kind of conversations fathers need to have with their sons, the kind of conversation older men have with younger men, which is, I see where you're going with this. I, 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 I can tell where you're headed. I know what this, I've seen this before, and I know what this looks like in five or 10 years. Um, these little seeds of sin, these little sins, seeds of laziness, um, they sprout. And they bring a harvest of pain and suffering. Now, I, I, don't, I don't see any fire yet, but I sure do smell the smoke. So, so uh, change the way that you're going. Turn and, and go a different way. And then what often happens in that conversation is the younger person will say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. Show me what I've done wrong. I've got this under control. I won't be like everybody else who does the exact same thing. And that's the kind of dismissive response that Cain gives to God. Because Cain goes to Abel in anger that his brother made him look bad. He's not owning his own responsibility for offering an insufficient sacrifice to God. Who's he angry at? Not himself. He's angry with his brother. Cain's lack of thanksgiving toward God was mixed up with ingratitude toward his brother. 
strife between brothers is mixed up with ingratitude toward God, and, 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 and strife with God leads to uh, strife with your brothers. If you aren't faithful to God, you hate your brother, and hatred for your brother ruins your communion and fellowship with God. The Apostle John put it this way in his epistle. John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, this, this grumbling, complaining, carping kind of spirit that Cain had, this unsatisfied spirit, destroyed both his vertical relationship to God and his horizontal relationship to his brother. Hatred, enmity, unrighteous anger breaks both vertical and horizontal relationships. Well, Genesis doesn't give us a lot of details about what happened when Cain confronted Abel, but we do know this. Jesus listed Abel among the prophets. Jesus said, you've killed all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. So it's safe to assume that Abel had at least some kind of prophetic office or function and that Abel exhorted his brother to do the right thing. And the response from Cain was to kill his brother. And that's what happens to prophets, it turns out. And that's how older brothers treat younger brothers in the scriptures. Maybe Cain was thinking, you know what? If God wants a blood sacrifice, I'll give him a blood sacrifice. And he kills his brother. Verse 9 then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And Yahweh said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should, should kill him. When any blood is spilled, it gets Yahweh's attention, especially if it's the blood of the innocent. Abel's blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. But once again, once again, God is so merciful to Cain. He doesn't destroy him, but he does put a mark on him that he wears forever. And the brothers and nephews that he runs into for the rest of his life are going to know to leave him alone. What we see here with Cain and Abel are two ways of approaching God. One in faith and thanksgiving, seeking to please God and do what he says and not to follow your own understanding. And then there's the way of self-service, of ingratitude, which is accompanied with bitterness and jealousy and anger ending in death and destruction. Cain's fratricidal spirit continues working itself out in the generations of his own family. Um, Cain has a descendant, Lamech, who is a murderer. Cain set the pace as the rebellion multiplies throughout the generations of his family. It eventually plunges the whole world into chaos and judgment, which is judged by the flood. Cain's confession of faith, his entire perspective is summed up in that snarky question. Cain asks that question, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that question? Is, is he right to say, I don't, I don't know, what, what are you talking about? I don't, I'm not in charge of Abel. Remember, Adam was called by God to dress and keep the garden. The word keep means to defend, to watch over, to protect. Adam was to preserve the garden and the life in it. Particularly, the most important life in the garden was the bride. He was to defend, to keep, to protect the bride. That's what it means to keep the garden, protect the garden. From whom? From what? What was there to, to, 
threaten the garden? Well, the serpent, Adam, failed. And then his son follows in his footsteps. Cain denies his duty to keep, defend, watch over, protect the life of his brother. Denying that's his, his job in any sense to show thankfulness for his brother by preserving his brother's life. So he did the opposite. Cain uh, imitates the serpent. Cain enters into the serpent's role to destroy his brother. What do we see here? What does this story show us? Ingratitude in the heart, ingratitude in the sanctuary begets ingratitude and hatred for brother. You and I are called to give thanks and to demonstrate our gratitude to God by drawing near to him in worship, by joining in the cosmos and giving praise and glory to God and to show that by our love for our brothers and our neighbors. Now, we're blessed to live in a place and in a time where every November we still stop and, and give thanks. There are still a few vestiges of Christendom in our society that we still give thanks for. And I'm still pretty happy that we have this. You know, we got baseball, we got apple pie, we got monster trucks, and we got Thanksgiving. That's still some good <laughs> vestiges, some good stuff. I'm joking. But I am thankful for Thanksgiving itself that we have a whole day. It's really good that we have a whole day set aside for Thanksgiving, but it's necessary in the midst of this that we don't just have this kind of secular, you know, uh, Thanksgiving that's this bland, um, superficial, yeah, we're giving thanks. To whom? To whom are we giving thanks? For what? You can't simply say, oh, I'm so thankful without saying to whom you're thankful. To, and, and for what? Thanks are directed to a giver. Who is the giver? And if we're going to lead the people around us in the right way of answering those questions, we must cultivate thanksgiving in our hearts and homes and church. So with Cain and Abel in the background, here are just a few reflections on the function and importance of gratitude as we pause to give thanks this week. Number one, gratitude toward God for his good gifts directs us outside of ourselves to recognize that we are not the solitary point of origin for anything good that we have. All blessing and salvation and light and life, all good things come from outside of us. Thanksgiving puts us in a position of humility as we receive things that we cannot create for ourselves. It admits, Thanksgiving admits that we are not self-sufficient. We are completely contingent upon God's blessing. Moses warned Israel in Deuteronomy. He knew what was in their hearts and he knew that they would be tempted to say, look at all that we've done. Look at how we've delivered ourselves and look at this great society that we've built. And so Moses corrects them. He, he, he says, you're going to be tempted to say in your hearts, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you your power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Gratitude directs us to acknowledge that life and blessing come from outside of ourselves. And so it follows that number two, true gratitude is directed to the right source. True gratitude is directed to the source of life and blessing. If you go out of your way to do something really nice to me, and I don't acknowledge it, and I don't say thank you, but then I bump into somebody at Harris Teeter, a stranger, and say, oh, thank you so much for doing that thing for me. I'm so, I'm so grateful. I'm really thankful uh, for that, that wonderful thing. I may have given thanks, but I haven't given proper thanks. I haven't directed thanks to the source of the blessing. So, so misplaced, misdirected gratitude is idolatry. 
Recall how Aaron tempted Israel to make the golden calf and then to praise it saying, this is your God, O Israel. This is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's absolutely ridiculous. That golden calf did nothing but stand there and shine as people are exercising themselves in worship and thanksgiving, but it's all misdirected and therefore all invalid. It is, it is impotent, misdirected gratitude, like, like the gratitude and worship of the men that I mentioned at the beginning is empty and it's hopeless and it's fruitless. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. Suppress the truth and the revelation and the knowledge of God, you become unthankful for his goodness and you direct, because you're created for worship, you direct your thanksgiving to a dumb idol. You, you inevitably direct your worship towards something else. Thus, ingratitude is the foundation of idolatry. If God has blessed me and I thank myself or I thank my government or I thank the universe or I thank Zeus or I thank Thor, that is idolatry. Now, can we thank other people for the good things they do? Absolutely, 100%. God uses all kinds of means and people in his work. And so if somebody does something wonderful for you, it's not idolatry to thank them. And as you thank them, you thank God for them. And you thank God for all of this that you enjoy. The point is, if I pretend to live in a universe without a loving Heavenly Father, and if I direct my worship and thanks for all the good things I have to something else, something other than him, then I am an idolater. And so it follows from there, three, that ingratitude is really the root of all sin. At heart, at the core, all sin begins with ingratitude. That's the, that's the tipping point in Romans chapter one, that they are unthankful, and then we get that slide into rebellion and chaos in Romans chapter one. Ingratitude is the root of all sin, which, which means that, and, and we'll get to this in just a second, but I wanna, I want to demonstrate how critical this is, is that when we tolerate griping and complaining and criticism and harping and bickering we are, we are on a path to destruction because we, we're, we're, we're breaking everything. We're, we're destroying everything. The failure of man to be thankful to his creator is the fountain from which all rebellion and disorder flows. When God gave his 10 commandments to Israel, each commandment is built on gratitude. We obey in thankful response to his deliverance of us. So God reminds them in the very first commandment. He says, I am Yahweh your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not that, not that golden calf. I'm the one who brought you out, out of the house, house of bondage. And then he proceeds from there and says, if you've got any thanksgiving in your hearts for all the gifts of freedom that I've given you, you will obey my voice. So here's how you're going to do that. Here's how you're going to show your thanksgiving toward me. Don't have any other gods. Don't make carved images. Don't carry my name lightly. Don't esteem my name lightly. Don't carry it in vain. 
all ways of expressing that he is God and there is no other. He says, remember my Sabbath. Stop and rest from your works and rest in my works. Be thankful for my works. Honor your father and mother. So be thankful for the authorities I have placed over you. Give thanks for your brother. And here's how you're going to do that. By protecting his life, by protecting his marriage, by protecting his property, by protecting his reputation. Don't be ungrateful for what you have and lustfully covet over what your brother has. You see, every one of the Ten Commandments uh, rejoices in in gratitude and, and obedience to every one of the commandments is based on proper gratitude and the expression of thanksgiving. On the other hand, ingratitude is the mother of all sin. The breaking of every one of those commandments begins with ingratitude. So forth, uh, gratitude is hard, and it's because it runs counter to the way of the world. Gratitude runs against, it cuts against the grain of the lusts of the flesh. And so Thanksgiving often feels awkward. Thanksgiving feels out of place, especially when harping and complaining and bickering and griping is the air we breathe. It's, it's complaint and ingratitude is the environment that we live in. Everything is under unceasing criticism from every quarter because you know everything is just so terrible. Everything is just so awful. And in this context, thankfulness can seem very naive. Thankfulness sounds very saccharine, like we're just making nice, like we're just pretending everything's okay when it's not. Thanksgiving feels especially out of place when there are real problems in the world, when you're, when you're individually going through suffering. If you're in the middle of a hard time, in the middle of suffering, I suggest to you that the first thing you need to do is stop and give thanks to God. You are going to think, I'm out of touch. Are you going to think I'm being insensitive? Or you think I'm being cruel for asking you to stop and give thanks? But you see, that's exactly what God's word requires of us. I could give you a whole list of references. I'm just going to give you three. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5.3, he's listing all the things that we need to put off, the things that we need to eject. And so he says, fornication and all uncleanness and all covetousness, let it not even be named among you as, as fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Thanksgiving rejects Satan's narrative and it embraces God's reality. Scoffing, whining, complaining, Grumbling perpetually is the way of Cain. And it communicates this narrative. It communicates a false gospel. It says your God is not sufficient, that he does not provide for you. It says he does not love you. He has made you miserable and he has closed his ears to your prayers. This is the very attitude that God corrects in Cain when, when God says to Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Why are you so sour and hateful? God says, what, what have I done to you? Is there anything that I've done to you to, to, to deserve this? And the only way to turn this around is to do what God told Cain to do, which is kill the sin. Kill the sin that is crouching at your door and make a conscious effort to exercise self-control over the complaining mechanism in our brain, to repent of it and to be deliberate about giving thanks. When you start to complain about things, it, it's just like it's, it snowballs. It's like you step on an escalator 
of negativity that's going down to the basement. And, you, and you're on for the ride, you're not gonna get off, you just step on the first stair and you just got another stair and another stair and another stair of complaint and anger and frustration and dissatisfaction with everything, discontent with everything. And um, uh, interrupt, interrupt those mental routines of ingratitude by noticing them and by stopping yourself and giving thanks. Several practical things that you can do to stop that when it starts is sing the Psalms and know the Psalms and love the Psalms, especially Psalm 136, which says something that God did for his mercy endures forever. Uh, for uh, he, he did this, now we respond in rejoicing. Write all the things that you can be grateful for. Make a note in your phone that you can pull up and add to all the time. Make a habit of telling other people how much you appreciate them, especially the most obnoxious person in your life. Um, uh, uh, tell them how thankful you are for them and all the ways that they help you grow as a person. Don't do it immediately after worship today because that's going to call somebody out and they're going to know that uh, we were talking about them. Um, don't, but, but give thanks for people. Say thank you. Make a habit. Stop, stop griping about everything in front of your children. When I grew up, when I was a kid, I thought we hated everybody. I thought... We didn't have any friends because the adults in my life complained about everything all the time. There was this endless complaint. Um, and, and you're teaching your children, you're cultivating ingratitude and, and a lack of contentedness in your children when you complain in front of them. Especially, especially when bitter providences come our way, especially when bad things happen, we must discipline ourselves to stop and give thanks. Thank you, God, for this sickness. Thank you, God, for this flat tire. Thank you for this unexpected bill. Thank you for this thing that has happened at work that is a challenge that I'm going to have to get through. Thank you, God. The sovereign God of the universe could have prevented this from happening, but he didn't. He didn't. That means this is good for me. That means this is what he wants for me. I need this right now. Thank you, God, for loving me this way so that I can learn how to grow through this challenge you've given me. Thank God in all things. If you become a thankful person, your marriage, your relationship to your kids, your friendships will flourish. Be the anti-Cain. Because when you submit your, your, your heart to God and trust him, things change around you. You see, um, just as, as Cain's uh, disruption in, with God equaled and, and manifested itself in this disruption with his brother, when, when, when you submit your heart to God and trust him, those uh, horizontal relationships grow and flourish. You become less demanding. You become less sinfully judgmental with other people. You become less paranoid about what everyone else thinks about you. You grow a thicker skin less easily offended, and a softer heart, which is more humble. You're not looking for reasons to be offended. You're patient. You're thankful for your brothers and sisters with all their warts. You see how God is changing them. You see what they're working on, and you're long-suffering with them because you're grateful for how long-suffering God is with you. That kind of patience is necessary to work through hard things, and all relationships face hard things. Thanksgiving restores us to each other. Ingratitude kills. Genesis chapter 4 presents two paradigms of worship, two ways of living. We are either our brother's keeper 
or we are brothers, accuser, and destroyer. To be your brother's keeper, dedicate yourself to being the anti-Cain. Jesus was the anti-Cain. Jesus doesn't kill his brother. Jesus gives his life for his brother. Jesus dies for his brother. Thanksgiving liberates us to do that. It liberates us to love our brothers in a way that exceeds the righteousness of the pagan humanitarian. To love people, not just to feed their present uh, need, not to just cure their present suffering, that we do, we must, but to love them all the way to eternal life, to love them all the way to communion with God. Now, take this occasion this week to run a self-diagnostic. Ask, am I a grateful person? Am I a dissatisfied person? Am I a malcontent? Am I constantly whining and complaining? Do I kind of look like Cain? Is my countenance fallen? Am I griping all the time? Am I complaining perpetually? Am I an omni-critic of everything in the world? Repent of it. Repent of your ingratitude. As I said, ingratitude is the starting point for all sin, and you don't want to go where that takes you. So ask for God's help to to lead you in proper worship, in the right spirit, to give thanks for all the people and all the circumstances and all the challenges that he has put in your life. Give thanks. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to lead us in the way of Abel, in the way of right worship, and to redirect us from the way of Cain. Correct us, grant us a heart that loves you, a heart that is in tune with all of creation. As all of creation sings your praise, so we may, may we join in the chorus and give you thanks as well. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.